Amen. Uh, open with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, and um, while you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would grant your people the essence of what is meant. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if, with his love, he befriend thee. What would it look like, Lord, if you did for us what you did for Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel and the people of Israel um, to stir them in a fresh way to covenant faithfulness and to restore to them what they had lost through their disobedience and through their covenant faithfulness, um, what would it be if you did it in our day and in our place? God, would you help us this morning to ponder that? And I pray, God, for your word, that, that it would be that which um, accomplishes the work that you send it out to do, that it would not return to you void, but would transform us, the way we think and the way we believe and the way we live in this world uh, in light of who you are and what you've done. So would you take up these next few moments and build us and challenge us, Lord. Give us hearts that are humble enough to hear your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You're in Nehemiah. And um, I, as, a, as an introduction to this text, I heard a story about a lady named Gladys Alward. Aylward? I never know how to say her name. The, the Chinese orphans that she ministered to, they called her Iweda, which uh, means the virtuous one. It's awesome. She was like 4'10", little shrimpy thing, and she saved hundreds of orphan lives in China uh, round about the time of World War II. And so there's a story that as the Chinese were invading China, excuse me, as the Japanese, I'm racist, as the Japanese were invading China, she took all of her... Uh, orphans, and they ran because the Japanese were brutalizing everybody in China when they were taking over. And so they go uh, running, and she's leading this, this group of around about 100 orphans. She has them in tow, and uh, these are orphans that she had basically been what we would term as their, uh, their um, evangelist and their mother and their... Uh, so, uh, Sunday school teacher and Pat, like she had taught them everything that she knew. And so they looked to her as, uh, as their hero of the faith. And as they're running from the Chinese, from the Japanese government, okay, Japanese are coming after them. They're running from them and they come up to a river that they cannot cross. It can't be swum, swim, swim. We don't know. It can't be crossed and they're going to be caught by the Japanese. And so she is near to the point of despair when her orphans, think, this, think about this now, she's the missionary. Her orphans that she's won to the Lord, they turn to her and they say, Iweda, pray to the God who split the river for Joshua that we can get through. Pray to the God of Joshua. Well, she, the virtuous one, was down on that idea. She didn't want to do that. Some of you parents can know exactly why. Because if we ask God for something really big and he doesn't do it, the faith of our little ones will be crushed. God didn't show. And so she's talking, sort of making like we do, making excuses for God about why well, we're not going to really do that. And they say, 
Iweda, it's the same God that we called to that did it for Joshua. Call on him. Trust him. Ask him. We need his help. And so she led them in prayer. And in the midst of their prayer, would you imagine the Chinese government, I'm getting it right this time, the Chinese government on the other side of the river shows up with temporary bridges and gets them across. Isn't that amazing? Now, that same God that splits the seas and dries the rivers, that's the God that they prayed to, okay? So setting aside the moral of this story that all of us need to know that the childlike prayer of faith will not break faith, but will light it on fire, let's dwell for a moment on the role that Bible stories ought to play in the imagination of faithful people. How should the Bible, the stories that we read in the scriptures, how should, it, how should they inform the circumstances that we encounter? Better way to ask it, who was right? Iweda or the orphans that said, let's call on the God of Joshua who did this? Well, they were right. To them, to the orphans, the Bible's events were to be learned about so that they can be learned from. History and activity that the Bible recounts for us concerning God's use of men and women are histories to be imitated, not just to be memorized. We do those things that we see in the scripture. We don't just learn about them and say, oh, neat, God will never do such things in our life. Stories of the scriptures are to inform our faith and our practice because, as they told Iweda, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed in our day. He's the same God who does similar things for people who trust him and who call upon him. Okay? Um, I told you uh, over, over the Christmas holiday, we, we looked at um, Joseph. And I told you that this was a man who was the heir of the kingdom of David. And that he would have grown up with family Bible stories that were his stories. Not just Bible stories, but like his great grandchildren or his great-grandparents and he's downstream from them but I don't think I finished the thought for you and the thought that needed to be finished was that those stories are your family stories and mine because of Christ so not just Joseph but our sons should grow up with the sling and the stone matter of fact Judah this morning as we were leaving for church Grace is not feeling well Judah said I want, a, I want a slingshot like David. And I'm like, yes, I'm planning to, to exhort our church to that this morning. That the stories we read in the scriptures because of Christ are our stories. Our son should grow up on the family weapon of choice, the sling and the stone. Our daughters, listen to me, should be raised to wield the tent peg and the tambourine. That's our stuff. That's our stuff. So we need to turn our attention to the book of Nehemiah as though we are reading about great-grandpappy Nehemiah who established for us our loyalties and our loves and our work and our expectation of God. So what if the church turned its attentions to Ezra and to Nehemiah and looked for models, not just information to know the story? So I'm convinced that one of the great sources of the church's impotency is that we feel a sharp disconnect with what Paul calls the roots of our faith. Listen to me. These are our stories written, Paul says, for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. These stories are written, Paul says, to give us hope in the midst of our current circumstances. 
If we are to understand the type of hope that we're to have, if we're to hope like Nehemiah did, then we need a lesson in biblical history, not a pagan lesson that just sort of looks at events as though they're not coming from anywhere and not going anywhere. It's just a series of things. We need to look at history as it really is, which is a story that God is telling or a a road trip that God is making. And there's stops along the way. But everything is moving from one point to another, and God is the one who's driving the car. So uh, there is a, uh, if you haven't gotten this sheet of paper, I printed out for you two really helpful pieces of information. We're not going to spend much time on them, but if you don't have this in front of you, you need to get this in front of you. Gucci, would you grab and uh, just grab that stack, and if anybody needs one, pass it around. So this is something that uh, my favorite professor from Bible College made us memorize, and I had forgotten a bunch of it, so I had to um, email him and hang my head in shame and ask him for it again so that I could pass it on to you. So there's all sorts of information here. The only thing that I want to call your attention to just very briefly is this column that says biblical chronology. Okay, You look at the column on biblical chronology and you look at the very bottom We're just going to, this tells you the whole storyline of the Bible from bottom to top. We'll cover it really briefly so that we can place where we are with Nehemiah and Ezra. So you start with the pre-patriarchal period. This is in the period of Genesis where you you go from creation to Terah, who who has an ancestor named Abraham or Abram. And so that brings us up to the patriarchal period, Abraham through Joseph. Okay, now we're in the Egyptian captivity. Do y'all see where we are? We're just moving up from bottom to top. This is the storyline of the Bible. So pre-patriarchal, this is Genesis. Patriarchal period is uh, towards the end of the book of Genesis, about halfway through to the end. Egyptian captivity is is the the period of, uh, of time between Genesis and Exodus. Then you have the conquest and the Exodus under Moses and under Joshua in 1440 where God redeems his people out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt. Then you come into the period of what's called the Judges. So Joshua takes them into the land. They conquer the land for the most part. And now they're in this cyclical period called the Judges, where God raises up heroes to defeat their enemies. And then his people turn to idolatry, and they go back into slavery. They call out for help. He raises up another hero, and it's again and again and again. That's the period of the Judges. Then you come into the period called the United Kingdom. This is under Saul, David, and Solomon. That's where God's people had a kingdom in Israel, and it was a united kingdom. That's the first temple built there off to the left in 960. That's Solomon's temple. And then Solomon gives the kingdom to Rehoboam in about 930, and then you go into the period called the divided kingdom, where kingdoms, where you have Israel in the north with ten tribes, And you have Judah and Benjamin in the south, and the kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. So it's this divided kingdom. Now, during this time, you have all wicked kings in Israel in the north, and you have some faithful kings spread out through Judah's history in the south. And so God, in, in covenant judgment in 722, he raises up the Assyrians, to take away, uh, to take the northern kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom into captivity. And then later on, he raises up the Babylonians in 586 to take the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. By the way, there's three what are called deportations to Babylon. The first one you can read about in Daniel chapter 1, where Nebuchadnezzar comes and he doesn't flatten the city. He just takes the princes and he takes all the nobles, guys like 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't remember their, uh, their Hebrew names. He takes them into captivity. He comes back a second time and does the same thing. He comes back a third time in 586 BC and he flattens Solomon's temple and he destroys the wall and he burns the gate and he levels Jerusalem, God's place. And they, are, and they enter into a period called the exile, which is a 70-year period. And now we get into what's called the restoration. That's under Ezra. You see Ezra's name there. Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, where they rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. And then you go in, in that time period between the Old and New Testaments. And then you get into the church age. The next thing on biblical history is the arrival and the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So... Our, what we're looking at in Nehemiah is one of the very last parts of the biblical story told in the Old Testament before Jesus shows up, okay? And all of this was designed by God. It's all, um, it's all aimed at something. And so, uh, by the way, just fold this up and keep it in your Bible or keep it handy because there's a lot of really helpful information in there. So, one of the mega themes, and we'll get through Nehemiah um, today, but uh, Nehemiah chapter one today, but one of the mega themes of the book is the connectedness of the people of God, that Nehemiah and his folk, they see themselves as connected to the story that God has been telling all along. They are a continuation of the story with Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and the rest. And so the question that we need to ask as we come to the book of Nehemiah is, what should God's people do when they have rebelled against God and tasted his displeasure? They have been in 70 years of captivity because of their idolatry, because of their sin. They are in the midst of judgment, and they also have, in the midst of judgment, promises of hope, promises of future, promises of restoration, promises of salvation. And so how are God's people in the midst of his judgment how are they to respond? What are they to do? Well, this is the book of Nehemiah. So if you write in your Bible beside verse one, write the word news. Some of you are not going to want to write that because you hate the news and I don't blame you, but do it anyway because it's important that we understand what's going on here. Write the word news beside verse one. Let's read verses one through four. Now, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Uh, there's a, by the way, there's a map that I passed out to you and you can see where, where Persia is, where Nehemiah is when he gets this news and where Judah is, which is the other nation, the other um, uh, country that's named. They're there for you if you, uh, you want to check those out. I was in Susa, the citadel and Hanani, or Hanani, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the people in the place, the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So how are, those things go together, by the way, people and their place. How is everybody doing back in uh, Jerusalem? By the way, at this point, Ezra and Zerubbabel have already completed rebuilding the temple. Okay, it's already a done, a done work. So he's asking about that work. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So let me explain something to you. This news that he gets about the, the wall being torn down and the gates burned with fire is not the 586 um, when, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. That's old news in Nehemiah's day. He knows those things. He's asking about how the work of restoration is going on under Ezra, under Nehemiah. They're rebuilding the temple. How is that going? And they say they're in trouble and they're in shame because there's no wall. There's no protection. This is news concerning Ezra and Zerubbabel. Uh, it's current news that the restoration had stalled. Okay? In his day, the temple had been finished, but the wall of protection was still down. And therefore, this is what is pertinent to us. Therefore, the worship of God had no protection from the enemies around it. And so Nehemiah is lamenting the fact that though the temple has been rebuilt, there's no lasting protection for the people of God. Okay? The, the temple is fully functioning. Everything is good there. But without a wall, they're going to face some problems that will ultimately bring that worship to an end. So the two problems that Nehemiah knows that they will face, the first is physical enemies. There are people surrounding Jerusalem at the time that hate what they're doing and will literally kill people to stop it. We do not want that God worshiped in that way, in that place, and they will draw blood to make it stop. These enemies, by the way, were disregarding the law of the day because Cyrus, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus had decreed when he took over, when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, Cyrus decreed that God's people could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and that he would pay for it. Now, those of you who know your Bible and know Daniel and know the story of Esther, what happens to a Medo-Persian decree from the king? It is irrevocable. In both of those stories, the king makes a declaration and then realizes, dang it, I was duped. But he can't undo it. It's according to law, you cannot do it. You have to, you have to issue other decrees to counteract it. And so, those people who were causing God's people trouble and, and trying to make them not build the temple, they were the ones that were violating the law. They were the ones that were disregarding the law, not those trying to be faithful to the Lord. Okay? The tyrant, not the faithful follower of, of Yahweh, is the one disregarding the law, and it's the same in our day. For Nehemiah, the wall would ensure that what has been rebuilt would remain, and that the lack of a wall would ensure that the restoration would be short-lived. The temple is there, but if we don't go and build a wall, it's not, it's not going to be there for long. Secondly, so physical enemies. Secondly, spiritual enemies. We're going to see in Nehemiah how great a tendency there was and is among God's people to fall back into old and rebellious habits. The work of Reformation was great, but it was an ongoing work because sliding back into ruts is so easy for us to do. So, big example is the Sabbath. One of the reasons they went into exile, one of the reasons God brought covenant discipline on them is because they had not been keeping the Sabbath. And so in Nehemiah's day, he, they rebuild the wall. This is later on in the book. He rebuilds the wall. They re-covenant. The people of God say, we are under God's judgment because we didn't obey concerning the Sabbath, among other things. And so they covenant, we will keep the Sabbath. But under Nehemiah's leadership, 
There's now this bustling economy and a community of worship and robust trade. And the moment there is money to be made on the Sabbath, they break the Sabbath. Then he comes out by the wall and he looks and everybody's just doing business like it's any old day. After like a week after covenanting that we will keep the Sabbath. And so what he's able to do is use the wall that he builds and the gates that they set up. He closes the gates and he says, you cannot come in on the Sabbath. And they show up, the merchants show up to, uh, to trade on the Sabbath. And he says, if you come here next week, I'm going to whip you. He threatens physical violence. You will not do this thing. And it's because he understands something that we have not understood. That the great problem of Israel was their own covenant faithlessness. And, and it's their disobedience that had brought on the exile. So Nehemiah and Ezra both know what we have forgotten or never learned, that despite the restoration, if rebellion continues, so will the judgment of God. If the restoration continues, but the disobedience does as well, the restoration won't last. So this is the problem with a lot of Christians when we get a candidate that we really like in, in political office and we say, that guy will help us. Not if he's not calling us to national repentance to the Lordship of Christ. He won't help It'll be short-lived. There may be some good things, but it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be long. And so Nehemiah knows that a wall is essential to covenant life. Now, think about this. So he hears the temple is going, worship is great, but there's no wall to protect. And we can almost imagine how modern Christians might counsel Nehemiah at this point when he hears those words. And he weeps and mourns for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We might hear things like, Nehemiah, you should rejoice and be thankful that the temple is back in operation. Who cares about a physical wall? We're a spiritual people. God is your fortress. He will protect the people and the work. Why are you so hell-bent on seeing a physical means of protection, O ye of little faith? Be content with the spiritual renewal and don't worry about the physical future. After all, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. You can hear almost us counseling. Why does a wall matter when you have the temple? Nehemiah knows what modern Christians don't. Enemies are real and whatever is not cultivated by the hands of godly men will go where? To hell. <clears throat> This news of the distress of God's people and of his place causes Nehemiah to do something. Now, let me press this home. Think about this with me. Is anybody right now telling us, you don't have to answer this out loud. I just want you to ponder. Because you may give me the wrong answer. It'll be fine. We won't make fun of you. But just think on this. Is anyone right now telling us how we may or may not worship God? Are we underground doing this, what we're doing? Do we say, by your leave, my Lord, to the tyrants in Washington or whatever? Do we, do we ask that before we come to the table? Can we go to the table? Can we gather? The answer is no. If King Jesus were on a physical throne in Jerusalem, we would worship him exactly the same as we do today. Unless, of course, he said, you should do this differently. We would change. But the idea is nobody is telling us that you can or can't do certain things certain ways. Amen? We are free. We're doing this as free men and women. Worshiping God according to Scripture and conscience. Okay? 
Now, ought we be content with that? Would Nehemiah have been content with that? It's hard. Is it hard for you to imagine a scenario that's right at our door in which the tyrannical powers that be would start to make demands of the people of God? Is that beyond your reckoning or your imagination? That somebody in our land might come and say, I don't know, you cannot gather or you must wear masks, or you can't sing the praises to Almighty God unless your faces are covered and you're practicing social distancing, and by the way, don't take communion because you'll have to touch it and you'll spread the disease. Is that so hard to imagine when there are churches in our land that still have not reconstituted, that there are churches in our country, places where it is illegal to do what we're doing right now? Is it so hard to imagine that at some point, that tyrannical um, uh, assault against the worship of God would come. It ought not be hard to imagine because we can see it right before us right now. And so here's our question. Does the church in America have the wisdom and the courage to stand against tyrannical overreach that is on its way? Do we have what it takes to stand? <coughs> is our, are our walls high enough and our gates able to close, do we have protection against the overreach? What kind of protections do we need? Firstly, we need doctrinal walls. There is a wall of impenetrable difference between truth and error, between male and female, gospel, not gospel, the image of God and pointless accident, between the lordship of Christ over all things and the lordship of the state over all things. These are distinctions that must be doctrinally maintained by those inside the church. We maintain them by our worship. We maintain them, listen to me, by that most hated of all words, indoctrination. Are you indoctrinating your children? Yes! Of course we are. Do the schools indoctrinate children? Yes, they do. So why are we the only ones who can't teach our kids where their loyalties ought to lie? We maintain these doctrinal walls by our worship, by instructing our children, and, and, Christian, by political participation that sees to the protection of freedom in the public square. Yes, you have a civic duty to participate in the public arena. Freedom of religion, by the way, is a Christian, not a secular idea. So think about this with me. If something weird happened, and top to bottom... White House, Congress, Senate, uh, Supreme Court, every governor, every mayor, every state, uh, you know, legislature and judicial branch. If everything were occupied by men and women who believed in the lordship of Christ over all things, Muslims could worship in our land free, however they would want to, because Christians would protect their their their. Uh, their religious liberty. We would understand that that uh, politics can't mandate conviction, religious conviction. Mormons would be free to blaspheme. Um, Jehovah's Witness would be free to blaspheme the name of Christ. All of this is so, but listen to me. If it were reversed, if Muslims were all in charge, would Christians be able to worship freely? No, we would not. Uh, Go talk to Tim about the constitution of of the government that he's going to that says... It's a Muslim nation, and they say, you have freedom of thought and of religion and of practice so long as it is in accordance with the Quran. 
And if you think, contrary to the Quran, we can execute you. Religious freedom is our idea, not anybody else's. Listen, is it a secular idea? Freedom of speech, right to bear arms, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. Are those secular ideas? Ask, where in our land, the most secular places, can you speak freely there? Maybe, so long as you don't use the wrong pronoun and wound somebody's feelings, and then they will ostracize you. <coughs> and they're trying to, like they did up in Canada, they're trying to make it punishable by civic law. So freedom of religion, all of those things, all of our liberties are Christian ideals, okay? They're Christian ideals. So we need doctrinal walls. We need political walls. Listen closely. The Constitution does not create any freedom at all. It articulates and protects freedoms that God has given irrevocably to man. We would say that, that the Constitution protects freedom by articulating it in the same way that Nehemiah's walls protect the freedom of God's people by making it obvious what's inside and what's on the outside. Okay, How is it that freedom can be protected by articulation? Well, you can be given by God the right to life. You can be, you have been given by God the right to liberty. You have been given by God the right to own property and nobody can take those things away from you unless they first violate the Lordship of Christ, which is like saying that they could violate the Godship of God. Our constitution describes these things to the citizens of our country so that we will recognize when those freedoms are being stolen and so that we could stand against such things. It's a protection that articulates. This has been given to you by God. And if anybody tries to take it, they are disregarding God. This is how our Constitution helps us. If the law of our land is being disregarded by the tyrants in power, listen to me. Your freedom remains because it's God-given. By the way, the tyrant doesn't know this. They think they can create rights the way Bugs Bunny pulls out hammers to hit Elmer Fudd with. Just reach down to your lower back somewhere and pull it out, and it's there. And they think also that they can revoke those freedoms just as easily. But our God-given freedoms are irrevocably ours. What did Pilate say to Jesus? Don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? Oh, I'm sorry, Master and Lord. No, he said, you have no authority but what heaven has granted to you, and you will be culpable for how you exercise that authority. Jesus points to the Godship of God when the tyrant is being unjust. Our liberties, though they are irrevocably ours, they are in terrible jeopardy because Christians have not been manning the walls as they have been being torn down. In our church right now today, we are just like Ezra's temple operating without Nehemiah's wall. That's the whole thing I'm trying to get you to understand. We are just like Ezra's temple operating without Nehemiah's wall of protection. These things are true, and yet it's really hard to convince modern Christians that they must weep over these things and pray over these things and then give everything they have to fix these things. This is our job. Nehemiah weeps, he prays, he fasts, and then he does something in the name of Almighty God. When I measure his response versus my own, I am ashamed. Where are the wise in the church who know these things? And where is the leadership to see them change? Where's the courage to do something about them? Well, so how 
does Nehemiah respond? I'm going to give you a few things that Nehemiah does to respond. The first, you can write beside verse 4, he responds with hope. <coughs> he responds with hope. Look in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, how in the world does that reflect hope? I'm glad you asked. So ask this, why is he doing these things? Are these the actions of a man who thinks everything is all over? Or are these the actions of a man who thinks that while it's a desperate situation, there is still a chance that God may move for his people and do something to right the ship? Think about this. When David conceived a baby with Bathsheba in ridiculous sin, in adultery and murder, and now there's a child, and God strikes the child because of David's sin, when did he mourn and fast and beg? It shocked all of his servants. While the, while the child was living and on his way to death, suffering and or, uh, getting, getting ready to die, David was fasting, he was mourning, he was weeping, and his servants brought him food, and they said, eat, and he said, no. And then the baby dies. And the second the baby dies, David hears the whisperings, he knows they're afraid to tell him. He gets up, he washes his face, anoints his head, and he eats. And they say, <coughs> that doesn't make any sense to us. What are you doing? Well, while there was life, David pressed into God because David knew that God might do any number of very kind things, even for wretched sinners like himself. Nehemiah knows that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And Nehemiah knows that what we know something that we must learn that if the Lord builds the house, so listen, if, um, if, the, if the Lord does not build the house, those who build it labor in vain. But if the Lord builds, any who stand against it do so in vain. Nehemiah's response is one of conviction and repentance, but it's one of hope. So listen to me. Nothing can defeat our God when he is of a mind to act for his people. Nothing. Nothing can defeat our God. Nehemiah's response is one of hope. And you will see in, in this book what we see often in our day that some of the most desperate enemies to the current restoration and reformation of God are the defeatist enemies inside the family of God who despair and therefore refuse to act. They throw up their hands and they say, what can be done in the face of such evil? And so they do nothing. Nehemiah will have none of that. None of that. So he, he weeps and he fasts and he calls upon the God of heaven. He hopes in God. Secondly, beside verse 5 and 6, write the word that, that Nehemiah responds as a historian. Look in, chapter, or in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we have sinned. So he, he brings up history, what he knows about God, that he's a covenant-keeping God, full of steadfast love, and that the people have been, uh, have been unfaithful. Nehemiah knows that God, listen to me, is always 
for his people. He's always for us. Always. But Nehemiah also knows that God's people are not always for him. Nehemiah knows what Balaam knew. That the people of God can have no prosperous enemies unless they go rogue. Let me tell you that again. No enemy can hope to curse or to come against God's people unless God's people go rogue. And so Balaam comes trying to curse. God turns it into a blessing three times, four times, can't remember. And then finally after that, Balaam comes and he realizes, okay, if, if, we, if we're going to try and attack God's people, what we have to do is excite them to sin against God and then they're vulnerable. Nehemiah knows that and Balaam knew that. This is the failure of Christian pastors and Christian fathers that has us in our current plight, defenseless and vulnerable. Do you not know that when God sees all the might and strength of the communists and the socialists and the liberals, the secularists, the feminists, the Republicans and the Democrats, on whose hands is smeared the blood of a generation of Americans, that he sees them all chanting in unison of their defiance of the Lord and of his Christ, do you not know that his pulse does not even quicken? That in the face of all that opposition and league together, that he who sits in the heavens still laughs them to scorn. He points to King Jesus, who must and shall reign, and demands their obedience while he threatens their destruction. Listen to me. They are not the problem. We are the problem. The people of God. They have power because we have sinned. We have trifled with his word instead of trembling at it. We have neglected his covenant of grace instead of establishing it among men. We have abandoned the world to a devil's hell and the world which Christ bought with his precious blood. Nehemiah calls himself and his people the problem. And we must do the same thing. I am the problem, so are you, and we must repent. Which is the third way that Nehemiah responds, right? Beside verse 6, uh, six through 9, the word repent. He responds as a repenter. So he says uh, to the middle of verse 6 uh, that he says, uh, let your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, notice his personal involvement of there. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Okay? So he, uh, uh, he, he repents. If you, are, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Notice what Nehemiah does not say. My fathers have sinned, and God, they are the worst. No. He acknowledges their sin, but also his participation in it. This is what is needed in our day. Men who will not just be experts on the sins of the culture or on the sins, listen to me, of the church's past. It's the darling sin of the church right now to call out the racism that was going on in the 1800s. But what about babies being slaughtered in our day? What, what about the sins of our day? We must start with the household of God and repent on behalf of all of us. We, brothers and sisters, we are the problem, not them. 
But like Nehemiah's hope, where is the confession aimed? Why does he confess his sin? He confesses not so that God will be reminded of their sin and heap up more judgment. Why does he confess? So that God will forgive them. So that he will pardon them and cleanse them from unrighteousness. Fathers, this is perhaps our most important job. We fail daily and we need to own those faults, but there's, there is more to being a great repenter than this. There are day-to-day sins, but more importantly, there, there have been in our past massive decisions that we have made along the way, either active or passive, that have impacted our families, right? We took some, some time, some way in our family, we took a secular turn and we drove for years in the wrong direction. When we come to our senses one day to find ourselves and our families in a place we ought not be, it does no good to try and save face by making little corrections towards the right road. We can't do that. You're in Mexico and you should have been in Montana. That's not going to be fixed by little corrections. Little changes won't cut the mustard. Our kids in the back seat need to see the tears in our eyes as we face them and say, Daddy has driven us all in the wrong direction. And we need to see the brokenhearted but hopeful humility on our faces as we go inside and ask directions towards the right way. And they need to see desperation of focus that accompanies real repentance, that we are begging God to get us back on the right road. The current circumstances in our country cannot be fixed by tiny changes and, well, nobody's perfect excuse making. We need to hit our knees and repent with passion and then lead forth in desperation to know the word of God, to believe it, to obey it, and to teach it to others, and to have no problem text, as the man said. No things in the Bible that we say, we don't really want to obey that. No, we have to go all the way back. Things are desperate, brothers and sisters, but so, as so long as life remains, there is hope. If we will humble ourselves and repent and seek the Lord like men. Nehemiah responds in verses 9 through 10, write the word, Intercessor, intercessor. In verses 9 and 10, he responds as somebody who prays on behalf of the people. But if you return to me, Nehemiah says, uh, quoting Moses, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the earth, or of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Listen, those people who've been driven into exile, Nehemiah says, are your people that you, past tense, have redeemed by your great power and strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your <coughs> servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What Nehemiah assumes about the rebellious people of God is that they are just that. They are still God's people. They belong to him despite their sin. That exile is proof of covenant sonship, not of dereliction. It's an interesting tidbit that this is a direct quotation that, that Nehemiah lays out. It's from Deuteronomy 6, um, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 9, where Moses, it's recounted, Moses is retelling the story of going up onto um, Mount Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments while Aaron was building a golden calf. While they were getting the law, they were rebelling against God. And when Moses comes down and realizes what happens, and God says, stand aside, Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out, and I'm going to raise up a new nation from you for Abraham, 
Moses quotes this idea, these words. These are the words of Moses. That Moses begged God for mercy on the people because if God were to kill them, that God's name would be vilified among the nations. Moses reminds God that he publicly made these people his own and that if, if he does not save them despite their sin, his great name is in risk of being mocked. Quote, because the Lord was not able, Moses says, this is what the nations will say. It was because the Lord was not able to bring them into the nation that he had promised them and because he hated them. So Moses says, Lord, if you do this thing, they're going to say it's because you weren't able to do what you promised and it was because you hated your people. They are your people, Moses says, for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Christian, when is the last time you've prayed this way? Humbly begging God to reform our church and our land so that his name would not be mocked and his character not misunderstood. Right? Moses appeals to God's concern for the name and reputation of God. If you do this thing, if you do this thing, your name will be misunderstood and mocked. And Nehemiah does the same thing and he quotes Moses doing it. Nehemiah lastly responds as Savior in verse 11. Write the word Savior. This will be the hardest thing for us to grasp, but it may be the most important thing that I have to say to you today that Nehemiah responds as Savior. Look in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I, he finally tells us, was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah has hoped, he has history, he has repented and interceded. And all these spiritual means of grace have led, him, have led him up to the point of dangerous and bold action. Pop quiz, Bible scholars. What, why was Esther so frightened to go into the presence of Ahasuerus? What happens if you go in uninvited? You get dead or you get mercy. There's no middle ground. It's, it's a, a terrifying thing. And Nehemiah was in the same plight with what I believe is the same man. And I'll explain that probably in weeks to come. His prayer leads to a desperate act of courage and political activity. Now, lest you heard that as a good little secularist, let me clarify. Because Jesus is Lord, political activity does not mean unspiritual activity. Nehemiah expects great things from God and then attempts great things for God. Brothers and sisters, how often have we used prayer as a cloak for inaction instead of as fuel for the fire of bold deeds. Let us pray. Let us wait. Let's see. Well, for sure, let us do all of those things. If we do anything without prayer, without waiting upon the Lord, without seeking his will, then we are in the wrong. But far too often we neglect what must follow real prayer, and that is real action. You have to do something. You have to do something. Prayer and bold action are not enemies. They are close, bosomed friends. So let us do, brothers and sisters, and act with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, mutually pledging to each other our lives and fortunes and sacred honor to raise, and let us raise up to build and to fight for the sake of our God and for the people of his name. So what kind of a thing can we do? Dan, do you have five minutes? Can I keep you for five minutes more? Yes. Okay. 
Let me tell you some, something that we have done and exhort us to some other things. What we have done, we have, we have made worship our warfare. Many Christians evaluate a worship service in terms of feelings. Do I feel encouraged? Is that music the most uplifting music that we could have? Um, is that sermon funny? Is it real to life? Does it help me? Does it suit my preference? If not, um, then, then we want to look for something else. There's no question of, is, uh, there's no evaluation of, is this service or is what we're singing or praying or doing, is it true, good, or beautiful? Right? It's all we want to know, is it, is it comfortable, is it approachable, and those kind of things. Now, please understand, those evaluative tools are one of the many things that is keeping the church in America and the church in local, our local area in a ridiculous state of weakness. How do those values square with go therefore and make disciples of all nations? How do those values square with I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? How do those values square with Paul? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this age. If we are engaged with a cosmic struggle against sin and Satan, and death, and hell, how in the world do you think it's going to be comfortable? <clears throat> it cannot be comfortable. Beloved, our worship is wonderful because it is warlike. So many well-meaning Christians dislike a worship service because it's too doctrinal or too rigid, which is like saying, I didn't really like boot camp because, golly, there was so much marching there. Worship is not KCBI on a Sunday afternoon drive. It is building a siege ramp so that we can batter the gates of hell like Jesus said we must. That is what our worship is for. We have room for growth here in what we're doing as a church. But hear me on this. We are not aiming at your comfort or mine. Do you want to be encouraged? Do we want to encourage one another in the faith? Yes. Do we want to equip you in the faith? Yes. Our worship should equip you for the battle, not prepare you for your afternoon nap, okay? If you don't like that, then let me love you enough to say this may not be the church that's for you. This is what we're aiming at, okay? Now, I'm preaching to the choir, but the idea in our church of changing churches is, e is as easy as going from H-E-B to Walmart on one day or the next, and it ought not be so, like... Russ, how easy would it have been for you to say, ah, I don't really like the Air Force right now. I'm going to go Navy today. Is that even a possibility? No, you can't do that. Like, this is your platoon, okay? So stand firm, stand firm. And again, I'm preaching to the choir. Okay, so what kind of things must we do? Repent. The biggest cancer in the Church of America is that we have swallowed secularism's lie that there's a strong wall dividing what is secular on one hand and what is sacred on the other. And, as the man said, that we have also put everything that matters on the secular side, like it's their job. Most Christians think politics, that we think politics are on the secular side. Education on the secular side. Taxes on the secular side. Health and welfare. Secular side. Social security. Secular side. Caring for the poor. Their side. And then we reserve on the sacred side boldly the right to teach some parts of the Bible. Just not any of those parts that 
command us to take ownership of those things. So we'll just talk about our own hearts and those kind of things. But by believing this lie, we have disbelieved what our Lord says when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, has been given to me. The question is not up for debate. Jesus is Lord or he isn't Lord, but he certainly is not Lord of some things. He's Lord of everything. There is no secular stuff. Repent of the lie and walk in the truth and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which means thinking hard about how we as Christians ought to spread the lordship of Jesus Christ from our families and our church into the world around us. We know that there's no help to be had for this world outside of the grace of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who is its lawful king, but we need to learn that in him there's no problem that cannot be overcome by his grace. I think our problem so often is that we're defeated before the battle breaks out as though Jesus couldn't fix the country. Jesus, what can he he really do about education? Well, a lot in every way if we would just hope in him and trust him and believe that it's our responsibility. Let's stop surrendering before the fight breaks out, own our faults, repent, seek the Lord for hope and for help, and live to see his name hallowed in our country, or we could just all go back to sleep and do nothing whatsoever. So shall we charge the battle line or just stand still and wring our hands while the world burns around us? There's more, but I'm, um, I'm done. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll, um, we'll go on. Lord, we, um, we need to learn from Nehemiah. Uh, we need to imitate this, uh, this man who, as, as the man said, is, um, is the doppelganger of Paul. This is the Paul of the Old Testament. We need to learn from him. To learn from him the idea that there are some things in this world that you expect us to take responsibility for. In the strength that you provide, resting on your means of grace, but that we need to do them with the hands that you've given us. That we would, uh, that we would present not our minds and not our hearts, but Paul says our bodies to you as a spiritual service of worship. And we would see to these things. Lord, we need help to think through these things. And the world, uh, we're told in Romans 8, waits and groans for the revealing of the sons of God. This world longs for the lordship of Christ to be manifest through the ruling church. And so would you help us, Lord? to know that and then help us to start to figure out how to spread a passion for the Lordship of Christ in this earth. Would you, would you do something astounding? God, would you forgive us? We, we, all of us have had these notions that there are certain parts of our lives that you don't care about, that you don't own, that you don't have mandate on us. God, would you pardon us for that wonderful error because we are yours, bought and paid for by your precious blood and everything that we have is yours. And so help us, help us, Lord, in a a reorienting way.
to, to, to change the way we see and the things that we do to accurately reflect your lordship. Would you cause your name to be hallowed? Would you cause your kingdom to come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven? And would you use us to do it, Lord? We ask it in your name. Amen. When great works of faith are attempted, they must always start with personal and corporate cleansing. The restoration of Israel started with the rebuilding of the altar so that the sins of the people could be dealt with. You have sinned and so have I. And if we don't acknowledge this, then we will all rot from the inside out because sin makes us dreadfully weak. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And a cleansed people has the strength of steel. Don't fail to confess out of fear that you're just going to fail again tomorrow. All of you are going to fail again. Amen? Don't withhold confession because, well, I might fail again. Don't do that. Embrace his means of grace today and see what happens. Repent. Confess. Receive the elements which are the signs and the seals of your pardon. And leave your future failures in the future as Jesus taught us today has enough trouble of its own. But before you charge the battle line, and God, I hope that you charge the battle line. Before you do so, bend the knee and be part of it. <coughs> Receive the king's kiss and blessing before you dash off without his armor to fight a fight that you cannot win unless he is with you. Let's rest in Christ right now before we dare attempt any work for him. So come and rest so that you can go to battle. Come be cleansed so that you can engage in the fight. Come, welcome to King Jesus. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we need work done. And it's a work that we cannot do on our own. And so we ask you, we plead with you to come. God, we... Um, We'll just own that we have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. And so would you pardon us from those sins? And would you use the means of grace now here at your table as we eat and drink in faith, remembering Christ broken and poured out for our sin, for our redemption, raised from the dead, triumphant and returning, would you use these means to sanctify us so that we can have strength to stand against temptation, that we can have strength to stand against the enemy, that we can have strength to do what you call us to do, to build and fight in this world until you come. And so would you, would you come and bring comfort to us, bring pardon to us um, as we confess our sins to you and approach you uh, for your forgiveness and your mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake.